Welcome back to the Ask Dr. Bill podcast. And this is a special two-episode phantasarama uh, about the trip that Samite and Nate took to Africa. You're going to hear all about it. So I'm just going to say, Nate, this, this, these two episodes are actually Ask Nate, the Ask Nate podcast, <laughs> because you uh, took off with Samite and spent a couple of weeks in Africa bringing music to children. And we're going to talk about that. Also, newsflash, the fall is upon us. The Age of Disruption tours, we're fueling up the bus, getting ready to head out through the upper Midwest and out to Denver and the heartland of the country and down into Texas. So a lot of information coming to you on that. So remember, if you want to know where we're going to be and when we're going to be there, just go to drbillthomas.org. So let's get started, Nate. Tell us about your trip to Africa. Yes, I just got back last week, and I was in Uganda for a week, and I was in Kenya for a week. It was transformative. It was mind-blowing. I was ready to have my mind blown, but it was way more dramatic of a explosion than I expected. Well, so let's start. Let's start with how that. How did that happen? Not, not everybody says, "Oh, I just got back from Uganda and Kenya." So how did it happen? As you know, we tour with Samite. And his nonprofit, global nonprofit, is Musicians for World Harmony. Yes, he sends out regular emails to his list, and I happen to be on the list. I work with him all the time, but I, I still like to, you know, see what's going out to the people. So I received an email, and I think I talked about this in the last podcast, but I received an email about a month before he was leaving saying, here's what we're going to do. We're going to go on this trip. On this date, we're leaving. And I just called him and said, what can I do to be part of this trip? And he said, well, it's just a matter of funding and just happened to receive a donation at the right time. And he called and, you know, a few days later, literally, and said, uh, we can do this if you can be gone for two weeks. And I had to make some adjustments to my parenting schedule. But we pulled it off and uh, I was able to be freed up for a couple weeks to do this. And you've been interested in Africa for a long time. Oh, for 25 years or more. Um, you know, if you haven't heard the last month's podcast, uh, check that out. It talks a lot about my development in terms of my interest in African music and culture. And uh, I won't go too far into that now because it's it would be repetitive. Mm -hmm. But we got up on the morning of our flight and found there was a complete meltdown at Delta. So everything was grounded. All flights were indefinitely delayed. Uh, we went to the airport anyway because you... You never know. We didn't want them to suddenly be up and running, and then we missed our flight. So we hung out at the Syracuse airport for the whole day. <laughs> <laughs> oh, uh, I, that's when you say, from a tour point of view, where's the bus when you need yeah, it? Yeah, exactly. Oh, man. You know, eventually they got us. It was like the third or fourth time they gave us a new itinerary because they kept trying to figure out a different route for us. and. Eventually, we got on a plane and flew to Atlanta or Detroit, I can't remember which, <laughs> over to Amsterdam, and then down to Nairobi, and finally landed in Africa at the Nairobi airport, and, you know, I had that familiar feeling that, actually, I've often marveled at how, and, and I again, I think I might have talked about this in a previous podcast, mm -hmm. but the 
feeling of when you're in a group and you're going through something together. Mm -hmm. There was this camaraderie in the plane when we landed in maybe mm -hmm. within an hour before mm -hmm. the landing in Amsterdam. The crew members were dancing in the galley. There was just like people passing babies and just it was really sweet actually. Yeah, there was nice. a lot of a lot of that energy. People and I see are it. good at that. They are good at that. It's a natural thing when you go through something in a group. Mm -hmm. You know, smaller groups, larger groups. I had never seen it in such a large group of st apparent strangers, but I see it all the time on tour, mm -hmm. you know, with the groups we, we, yeah, uh, right. we, you know, it's not always the same people every year, but, you know, even at the end of a week, whoever happens to be with us, it, it transforms the relationship because you've gone through this adventure together in, mm -hmm. in close quarters. Anyway, that was pretty inspiring. That wasn't our last flight. We still had one more flight to Kampala, mm -hmm. which is like only an hour. But because we got in so late in Nairobi, we ended up having to spend the night there uh, because there were no more flights. And we had to get visas, temporary mm -hmm. visas, just to stay in, in Kenya for the night. Right. We walked through the dark. I was kind of not sure about how much I needed to be worrying about security and or, you know, opportunistic people mm -hmm. trying to grab my passport or whoever, whatever. And there's volunteers there trying to help us fill out the paperwork. And as always, what I knew I would do the whole time is just follow Samite's lead mm -hmm. as far as the food, as far as when mm -hmm. it's okay to drink water and ice. Mm -hmm. And, you know, mm -hmm. he trusted these people. And I could tell he was sussing them out, too. And mm -hmm. they, they were kind of like, what? What? You don't trust us. They've added, uh, they've added actually uniforms so that it's not just any yeah. random person helping right. you with your, you know, your visas. So we had to pay a little money. Walked through this really weird. It, it, the whole the whole experience was filled with just things are a little different here. Mm -hmm. We walked through to this um, parking garage, mm -hmm. which had been turned into a mall. The parking spaces were still mm -hmm. painted on the floor, and the, the the arrows were still on the floor. But they built these little booths, and mm -hmm. we just walked into a booth. They sell the hotel and the ride to the hotel and the food for the mm -hmm. night all at once. Mm -hmm. So we were off. Uh, and right away, you know, it's you're driving on the left side. It was very at dark night. at night. It was very dark, very few streetlights, if any. It was very bizarre because we would go for these long straight stretches and then turn around and like skip over to a little bit smaller road and then go for another long straight stretch and then turn around. It was like this weird maze-like type thing, but it was lots of long stra mm -hmm. straightaways. Yeah. And then pulled off the paved road. You know, it was like, okay, here you are at the hotel. You see the sign for the hotel, and then it's like up and down lots of very large dirt road with lots of ruts. And mm -hmm. I was like, I wish I had my motorcycle because that's what I love to ride <laughs> here in the States. But uh, And that, that kept going throughout the whole trip. I kept longing to be out on the yeah, two-wheeled vehicles. Pl plenty of track for you to be on. Yeah. So, but yeah, it was almost scary, you know, and again, it was my first day there. So I, I was really just totally not aware, not sure how much quote unquote danger was going to be present at any given time. You know, and I want to really connect that to something that sometimes people living with dementia experience, which is the anxiety that comes with unfamiliar surroundings. Yes. Now, your unfamiliar surroundings were Nairobi at night. And people listening can be like, yeah, well, I could get that. You know, if you're not from there, that could be stressful. But what happens sometimes to people living with dementia is the unfamiliar surrounding is the grocery store or uh, the park, you know. 
And that feeling of like, ooh, I'm not really sure. And notice how comforting and reassuring it was to have Samate by your side. Yes. Imagine you trying to negotiate all this by yourself. Forget about it. Yeah, that would have been really scary. So, I mean, I'm sure I could have managed, but I'm so glad I was. Uh, yeah. So you know. when you think about partnership and collaboration, in some ways, Samate was partnering with you and guiding you through a situation where you were uncertain and unsure, felt like it was really unfamiliar. And he was offering you the kind of reassurance that made you feel more comfortable. And then you can think about that very same sort of thing applies just the same way uh, for people living with dementia. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah, and I would add that there, there were times where I could tell he was a little unsure, mm -hmm. but it still was effective. What I'm saying is maybe for the care partners out there, it's maybe not necessary to pretend that you have all mm -hmm. the solutions right, and you right. know everything. It's just you're together. Yeah, they're your advocate and uh, they're looking out for your best interest and mm -hmm. uh, and it's a team, you know, right. our best interest, I right. should say. You, you, know? you, you guys were both both going there. Yeah. So. Yeah. so interesting. So you, next morning? So yeah, we just, it was like a very short, you know, we probably were in the hotel for about four hours. <laughs> Again, I didn't know, like, mosquito nets. I had a mosquito net. Should I put it up? We had the meal. I had to be thinking about, you know, what comes out of the ground because, you know, you mm -hmm. don't want to eat, like, fresh salad or fresh really anything. Everything has to be cooked mm -hmm. for your the bacteria in my stomach, you mm -hmm. know. It's it was a different, yeah. Mm -hmm. So we get up in the morning. It was still dark. I didn't see any light in Nairobi that first day. And on the way to the airport, you have to pull over, and there's like four, I think, security checkpoints. Mm -hmm. So all passengers get out, and this guy who's driving us, we don't know him, mm -hmm. and all our bags are in the car, and we have to get out of the car and go through a thing, and he's going separately. Mm. And we're like, well, I hope he's trustworthy. <laughs> you know, he's got like everything. We only have our passports really wow. on us. Instruments um, and stuff? All the Everything. Well, our instruments didn't uh, actually make it. They were supposed to arrive in Kampala. Uh -huh. We didn't know that they had been lost yet but uh, at that point. But, mm -hmm. you know, everything we had carried yeah, on with us right. was with us. So that's like a mile outside of the airport, you know, even on the highway. Everybody mm -hmm. gets checked. They go through the whole vehicle and, like, look underneath and everything. Um, it's different. It's a different world for sure. Even everybody kind of thinks of 9-11 being the day everything right. changed. And I, I would agree with that. But it continues to yeah. progress more and more complicated and less convenient and mm -hmm. safer right. in theory. Right. But I was surprised a lot at, you know, the fact that a lot of the times I would go through the things, the scanner, and it would beep. No. <laughs> nobody said it. They were just like, look at me and say, okay, go ahead. Interesting. Yeah, and I think because there's so many layers, they figure, oh, the next guy will, will catch if there's something to— uh, He'll you know. catch it. So anyway, then you do the same thing going into the airport building, and then once you're in the airport building, you check in, and then you go through it again to get mm -hmm. to the gates, mm -hmm. uh, and then again to get in the airplane. It was a lot of security. Mm -hmm. Got to Kampala, probably still before dawn, I or it was right around dawn wow. uh, when we arrived in Kampala, and it was like kind of the difference between New York— Airport JFK and uh, and the Ithaca Airport or the Syracuse really? Airport. Oh, Kampala yeah. was small. Yeah, much smaller airport. You know, there's like animals grazing in the hills right there by the. You know, mm -hmm. when you land, you can see it right there. And we were met by Samite's son, 
uh, mm-hmm. Kenneth, who drove us to... So then, you, now, getting off the plane in Kampala, now Samte's in his native Uganda. Exactly, with family, family right away. Yeah, It's just the whole, all of a sudden, that uncertainty goes away. Yeah, the anxiety level definitely yeah. goes down. Yeah. Then we found that our bags were somewhere else. We didn't know where, but they were... <laughs> Probably Istanbul. So, again, yeah. our itinerary had already changed. We had already been delayed by a day. Yeah. And so, all you know, we had planned on going straight to the north, mm-hmm. uh, which is, you know, four, five, six hours drive. But we ended up just spending mm-hmm. a day in Kampala just to kind of... Uh, wait for our bags, which mm-hmm. didn't end up coming. We ended up leaving without them anyway. Mm-hmm. We borrowed a guitar north of Kampala, about an hour north of Kampala, and we pulled in to the, uh, what is it? what was it called? Hope North uh, was the name of the organization, and these are former child soldiers. Mm-hmm. Um, there was about maybe 25 uh, young men mm-hmm. and a few uh, leaders. There was a woman... Um, who was teaching them music and dance, and there was a man doing more traditional schooling, mm-hmm. and they had a guitar. Mm-hmm. As we pulled in, they greeted us with a very vibrant procession. Mm-hmm. Uh, they came out of their compound mm-hmm. and greeted us kind of on the road, and we got out of the car, and they kind of took us in and made a parade essentially mm-hmm. we we all walked together after mm-hmm. they they performed a couple quick songs and then mm-hmm. and then it became a parade where we all walked with mm-hmm. them into the compound you know then we split off and and they they wanted me to teach a guitar lesson like right away <laughs> so i ended up and we had like three guitars and maybe four three or four student right. types we just quickly looked at what, you know, he played me a few songs that, that he could play and very, very rudimentary stuff. And mm-hmm. again, being so early in the trip, I really just didn't know what to expect. And I actually didn't, wasn't even prepared to be asked to teach. I, right. I, I didn't really anticipate that. Spontaneity. Spontaneity, for sure. So, uh, you know, I noticed that they were playing a lot of C's, G's, and, and D chords. And I thought, well, probably they want to learn something that's you know, maybe not African, even though that's like I love African mm-hmm. guitar mm-hmm. so much. But I um, I broke out Ode to Joy, oh. <laughs> Autumn Ode to Joy. I figured maybe they would have yeah. they would recognize that right. song. No, nope. not even at all. <laughs> it, it was no, and so I kind of abandoned so, that pretty okay. quick. But <laughs> and then what, what? So what did you? Did you just work on mechanics, or did you try to get focused on the uh, song? Or? I think that that first day I was just kind of like showing them the concept of a scale. Uh-huh. So if you're playing this chord, all of these notes work, mm-hmm. and it was it was intense. And I'll hopefully there'll be video up. I don't. I think it's actually there is a video that might already be online, and the kid is sweating. It's like he really wants to get it right. Mm-hmm. He's trying really hard, and it was it was very hot. Right. But it's pretty dramatic to watch yeah. him because you know. And I remember actually being in that same mindset. Like I gotta. The teacher will think I'm no good if I don't really do this right yes. and I'm trying so hard. And that's not where music comes from at all. <laughs> I, I know, man. That is, well, you know, it's fun getting to music from technique. There's the technique and all the anxiety around that. And then that goes into the background and then music comes into the right. foreground. Exactly, yeah. exactly. So, yeah, that was fun. And, uh, and then we all got together in the middle, had a quick song. Everybody, I think Samite had in 
intended on it being a quick hand off the guitar and run thing, but mm-hmm. it ended up being, I think we were there for at least an hour, mm-hmm. maybe more. Mm-hmm. Um, and we did like a little goodbye song mm-hmm. and, uh, and then rolled out of there. So tell me how, how, tell me about Samate and what you were feeling from him or how he seemed to be approaching this. Because here you are, we know him from his work in the United States, you and I both. You played with him countless times here in the U.S. Now you're seeing him in a different setting with different, kind of some different goals and different ideas. What was that like for you and what what did you observe about Samite in that milieu? I, it didn't seem like he was all that different, mm-hmm. really. I mean, he was the same guy. One of the things that I found notable was that he was struck by how different everything was. The last time he had been was three years ago. Mm-hmm. He grew up there, so I think, you know, if I drive to Boston, I'm also like, whoa, they put a thing here and that that thing's gone, you know. So there was a lot of that and also cultural things, not just landmarks that had been gone or new ones Mm -hmm. that had been been there. Culturally, he was noticing how much safer, and this was especially in the north of Uganda. Right, I remember him telling stories earlier that of running, really running for his life to catch a bush plane out of a place where there was combat yeah. going on. Yeah, uh, I definitely heard a lot of stories about that. I didn't see anything really like that. I, there was a lot, I saw a lot of M16s and, you know, different, I don't know what, I actually don't know which models are which, but a lot of <laughs> scary big, looking guns. Scary looking guns and scary looking dudes carrying scary looking guns and also some scary looking vehicles, giant armored things that say, you know, Uganda police. They were few and far between those. I only saw like a couple the whole time. But even just at the gas station, there's a guy sitting there with a gun, just Uh like he's just in charge of keeping the gas station safe. Uh At the bank, there's three of them. Every place of business, there's definitely going to be a guy with a big, huge gun. At the same time, you know, to me, that was like, whoa, this seems kind of dangerous or something. But I think Overall, culturally, things have gotten much safer. You know, he kept mm-hmm. saying when we would go through a security checkpoint, they come in, they want to see what's happening, and they look under, you know, look around and, you know, basically do a full search of the vehicle. Mm-hmm. And he would say, you know, back in the old days, mm-hmm. we would have been on our knees mm-hmm. on the sidewalk and they would have been yelling at us. Mm-hmm. So. That I think seemed, things are getting thought, better <laughs> overall. I am glad to hear that. Yeah. So we traveled to the north. That was our first mission was mm-hmm. was to the north. The group that we used to Skype with last year and mm-hmm. the year before that was in Lira, which is, is up there mm-hmm. in the north. That was one of our destinations, but that was like the third day. But we went straight for Gulu and Odek, and we visited Hope for Humans, which was the organization that they were really trying to assess, looking for partnerships. I mean, this trip really was about assessing potential partners for Musicians for World Harmony and for the music therapy program at -hmm. Berkeley. So we were traveling with Karen Wax, who's a professor Mm -hmm. from Berkeley in music therapy. So Hope for Humans was the one we we were the most anticipating as being like a really good organization, Mm -hmm. and it did not disappoint. They specialize in dealing with children with nodding syndrome. Nodding syndrome is a mysterious disease. They don't have very well documented. In fact, there's really no definitive cause for nodding syndrome, although it correlates with the war years. 
there's different theories as to what causes it, but there are no new cases since the war ended. There are no new cases. It's a disease of children. Some people compare it to Zika, but it's it affects their nervous system. It affects their growth. Mm-hmm. Many of the kids we saw, I was like, okay, there's a five-year-old, and they would say, no, that's a 17-year-old or a mm-hmm. 21-year-old. So I saw a whole range, mm-hmm. um, and so I, I'll go into a little bit of detail here. The first thing we saw when we arrived was a young girl by the name of Gloria who mm-hmm. was brand new there. She had been there for two or three days, and she was moving very slowly. In fact, she was just lying on, on the stoop when the, the staff addressed her. Mm-hmm. Uh, they basically had to lift her and move her. She, mm-hmm. she wouldn't really move on her own. Her, mm-hmm. her limbs were like pencils. And she just didn't look happy. She looked very, there was kind of like a, mm. a fog mm. over her face. So that was Gloria. And then we saw maybe 20 or 30 other children mm-hmm. who were running in the courtyard, throwing the ball up in the air, mm-hmm. bouncing it up and mm-hmm. yelling and laughing and playing and horsing around with each mm-hmm. other, you know, physical mm-hmm. activity, uh, mm-hmm. you know, rigorous mm-hmm. even. And the staff told us that those kids, a matter of three or four months ago, what were Gloria? worse, worse than, Gloria. than Gloria. And the thing they attributed to is anti-seizure medication, which mm-hmm. is a major need mm-hmm. for kids with Nodding syndrome. They mm-hmm. go through many seizures a day. Right. And belonging. I know. That's it. And having just love, community, music. Mm-hmm. That's what we were there to, to, Being to be part of. Yeah. It's amazing what happens when they have those things. Mm-hmm. They just come alive, and it's a lot like Henry wakes up. You know, it's mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. feed the soul mm-hmm. and you know take care of the body, mm-hmm. and it's just amazing. Wow. So, so we one thing we sort of connect this story to in the other work we do relating to aging and dementia and so on is the concept of excess disability. So, hey. It's a tough world out there, and there's all kinds of things that can happen to us. I mean, you're just mentioning nodding disease, you know, Alzheimer's dementia, strokes. I mean, lots of different things can happen to us. The amount of disability we experience as a result of that, that's not fixed. That can be altered and be changed. So people living with dementia, to use an example, in a supportive environment that's enriched with belonging and caring and music and good food and enough sleep and proper medication, those people will experience a lot less disability than it, a person living with the same brain conditions. Condition, yeah. yeah, without those things. And yeah. that's the person you see just leaning against the wall, right. not speaking, not moving. Two people, same brain condition, very different amount of disability. So. So what Hope for Humans, like, what a great name, by the way. What they're doing is removing the excess disability. Right. There's no miracles. Nobody just wakes up, oh, I'm cured, you know, no problem. But if you take away the excess disability, then you have the kids running around in the courtyard playing with a ball. Yeah. Totally different story. Yeah. Well, that's a pretty good cliffhanger, I think, to keep people interested for the next episode where we're going to pick up the journey with Nate and uh, follow him back into Kampala and then up to Nairobi and back home. 
and uh, we're really looking forward to taking you with us on the journey here at the Ask Dr. Bill podcast. Take this good advice